Here's your host, Sheila Dean. Hello, everyone. This is Sheila, host of the Unsanctioned Citizen and That AI Show. I wanted to share a little bit about the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program as part of the HRSA. If you or someone you know is suffering from the lasting effects of an illness or disability symptoms after taking a vaccine, please contact the Health Resources and Services Administration to learn more about the resources available to you that could help you and many others. For claims associated with the COVID-19 vaccine or other COVID-19 related countermeasures, please follow your request for benefits with the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program. Please visit injurycompensation.hrsa.gov to learn more and tell a friend. Okay, so that's it. That's the PSA and the promo. And uh, as as prescribed, I am going to be reading more from your authoritarian boss. No, that AI show today. Sorry. Um, it looks like we're going to read just this last page, the monolith, and then maybe we'll just go into maybe we'll go into chapter six. I don't know. So this is the last segment of this particular this particular one. Let's see, you're going to invite a bunch of people again. So this is the authoritarian moment, how the left weaponized America's institutions against dissent by one Ben Shapiro. Um, this is the chapter called the Your Authoritarian Boss. And this is the monolith. The chances are that you, the reader, know all of this already. That That's because the chances are quite good that if you work, you're working for a giant company that's part of an authoritarian monolith. Decades ago, you probably would have worked for a company with fewer than 100 workers. Today, you likely work for a massive company with rigorous top-down policies that mirror the prevailing political notions of the day. According to the Wall Street Journal, nearly 40% of Americans now work for a company with more than 2,500 employees, and about 65% work for a company with more than 100 employees. And the big companies are growing. The arenas in which big companies thrive, the services sector, finance, the retail trade, are also fast, the fastest growing areas in the American economy. Unsurprisingly, these are also the areas in which employers are, are most likely to lean to the left or at least mirror leftist priorities. The COVID-19 pandemic has only exacerbated the advantage for larger companies. Between March 2020 and September 2020, more than 400,000 small businesses closed. Meanwhile, big companies got bigger. An economist, Austin Goolsby, wrote in the New York Times, big companies are starting to swallow the world. Small businesses are generally tied to the, to the communities in which they exist. They know the locals, they trust the locals, and they work with the locals. Large companies come across boundaries of locality their national in scope and orientation. This means that they are far more concerned with enforcing a culture of compliance than in preserving the local diversity that typically characterizes smaller outfits. 
Large companies have huge HR departments concerned with the liability that innately accrues to deep pockets. They have legislative outreach teams concerned with the impact of government policy. They have corporate CEOs who are members of the new ruling class. And there's something else, too. Entrepreneurs believe in liberty. That's because they require liberty to start their businesses. But as those businesses grow, and as managers begin to handle those businesses, managers tend to impose a stifling top-down culture. Managers prefer order to chaos, rigidity to flexibility. And these managers are perfectly fine with a rigid social order demanded by the authoritarian left, which means that our corporations aren't allies of free markets or of the ideologies that undergirds free markets. Classic liberalism or classical liberalism, also known as libertarianism. They've now become yet another institutional tool of an ideology that demands obedience. And so long as their wallets get fatter, they're fine. They're fine with it. Better to lead the mob, they believe, than to be targeted by it. There's only one problem. Sooner or later, the mob will get that too. They will get to you. So, let me see who's with me. Nope, no listeners yet. On a Saturday night, not surprised. <laughs> and uh, actually, there's a there's a dedication in here from Ben Shapiro. It says, To my children who deserve to grow up in a country that values freedoms promised by the Declaration of Independence and guaranteed by our Constitution. So, let me see here. So there's, there's only eight chapters, and we've read four and five, and chapter eight is actually unfriending Americans. So there's the radicalization of entertainment, which, you know, if you, if you do or don't want to, to get on that, you, you don't have to. But I think the choice before us is probably the more practical afterward to read. So I'm going to read, I'm going to read that one. 213. Let's flip ahead here. Okay, the choice before us. In early February 2021, actress Gina Carano made a fateful decision. She posted a meme on Instagram. Carano, who played a popular character, Cara Dune, on Disney's Plus hit, The Mandalorian, has been verging on the edge of cancellation for months. That's because Carano is conservative. She jokingly posted that her pronouns were beep boop bop in order to mock woke authoritarians pressuring strangers to list their gender pronouns. In an aftermath of the 2020 election, she posted on Twitter, we need to clean up the election process so we're not left feeling the way we do today. She'd post a meme challenging the elite consensus on COVID by suggesting Americans were putting masks over their eyes uh, all of this had already made Carano persona non grata with Disney Plus and Lucasfilm. Um, according to Hollywood Reporter citing a person inside the companies, the bosses had been looking to can Carano for two months. Disney Plus and Lucasfilm had scrap plans for Carano to star in her own spinoff inside Star Wars Universe in December. Carano's fatal error came in posting a meme citing the Holocaust. Let's turn the page on that. The picture showed a Jewish woman running away from a crowd of Germans carried by the caption, Jews were beaten in the streets, not by Nazi soldiers, but by their neighbors, even by children. 
because history is edited, most people today don't realize that to get to the point where Nazi soldiers could easily round up thousands of Jews, the government first made their own neighbors hate them simply for being Jews. And how is that any different from say, hate, hating someone for their political views? Now, comparisons to the Holocaust were generally overwrought, but Carano's post certainly was not anti-Semitic as a recipient of more anti-Semitic memory than perhaps most any person alive I can spot anti-Semitism a mile off. And this is the author, Ben Shapiro, who is presumed Jewish. So the post was making the point that oppressions of others doesn't start with violence. It starts with dehumanization of the other. And that's a fairly generic and true point, even though Carano, as she herself acknowledged, should have invoked the Holocaust. The blowback was immediate and final. Disney Plus and Lucasfilm fired her outright. They stated, wrongly, that she had denigrated people based on their cultural and religious identities. They could not explain precisely how she denigrated anyone, particularly Jews, but authoritarian leftism requires only excuse for cancellation, not real justification. So one might think that Disney was merely setting a standard that overwrought Holocaust comparisons were forbidden on social media. Not so. Pedro Pascal, the star of The Mandalorian, tweeted in 2018, comparing Trump border policy with regard to children to Nazi concentration camps, to the sound of crickets. Normally in our authoritarian culture, this is where the story would end, but that's not where the story ended. As soon as I heard what happened to Carano, we'd never met before, she, I reached out to her personally, my business partner reached out to her business manager, and we offered Gina a job to push back against Hollywood's absurd cancel culture. We would partner with her in producing a film to star her. Gina's statement tells the tale. The Daily Wire is helping make one of my dreams to develop and produce my own film come true. I cried out and my prayer was answered. I'm sending out a direct message of hope to everyone living in fear of cancellation by the totalitarian mob. I have only just begun using my voice, which is now freer than ever before, and I hope it inspires others to do the same. They can't cancel us if we don't let them. And they can't cancel us if we don't let them. This should be our rallying cry because if we say it together, liberals, centrists, conservatives, the authoritarian left loses. Our institutions have been remade in the mold of authoritarian leftism by elites who deem themselves worthy of holding the reins of power. But we don't have to acquiesce to that power grab. We can say no. After announcing our partnership with Gina, tens of thousands of Americans joined Daily Wire as members. I personally received hundreds of emails from people asking how they could help, and hundreds more from people in Hollywood asking if they could escape the system. Americans recognized not just that we were attempting to challenge Hollywood on its own terms, but that we must all act in solidarity. That while we are individuals, by ideology, cohesive action is necessary if we wish to make a consolidated counterattack on the authoritarians. So how exactly do we go about wresting control of our institutions away from the, an authoritarian left hell-bent on American renormalization? Well, we begin with an educational mission. 
and we get practical. Educating America Redo The authoritarian left has successfully pursued an educational project and inculcating Americans into embarrassment at America's founding philosophy, her institutions and her people. Their argument that America is systemically racist, that her institutions fundamentally broken, has won the day on an emotional level. To even challenge this argument is deemed vicious. But the argument is fundamentally wrong. America is not systemically racist. Racism does exist. Slavery was one of history's greatest evils. History does have consequences. It is terrible and sad that gaps between white and black success remain a feature of American life. All of those things are undeniably true. And the solution to all of those evils is not the overthrow of all existing American systems. In fact, the anti-racist policies the authoritarian left loves so much have been tried and they failed miserably. That won't stop the authoritarian left from calling you a racist for pointing that out. The solution is the same as it was in 1776, a government instituted to protect the pre-existing rights of its citizens and a commitment to both virtue and reason. America is not founded in 1619. It was founded in 1776. And the principles of American liberty are eternal and true. The fact that America has not always lived up to those principles isn't a referendum on the principles themselves. And the greatness of America, the greatness of her individual freedom, of her powerful economy, of her moral people, represents the unique outgrowth of those principles. The sins of 1619, the sins of brutality, of bigotry, of violence, of greed, of lust, of radical dehumanization, are sins that adhere nearly all of humanity over the course of time. Human beings are sinful and weak, but we are capable of more. It is not a coincidence that America has been history's leading force in favor of human freedom and prosperity. The great lie of our time, perhaps of all time, is that such freedom and prosperity are the natural state of things, and that America's systems stop us from fulfilling their promise. Precisely the opposite is true. So how do we, the new resistance, fight back against authoritarian left that has embedded itself at the top of our major institutions? How do we stop an authoritarian left dedicated to revolutionary aggression, top-down censorship, and anti-conventionalism? We reverse the process by the authoritarian left so long ago we refuse to allow the authoritarian left to silence us we end the renormalization of our institutions and return them back to actual normalcy and we pry open the doors they have welded shut our refusal is a weapon the first step in unraveling the authoritarian leftist dominance of our institutions is our refusal to abide by their rules. The authoritarian left engaged in a three-step process directed towards cudgeling Americans into supporting their agenda. First, they relied on the cordiality principle, the principle that Americans ought to be cordial and thus inoffensive to make Americans uncomfortable about dissenting from prevailing social views of the new ruling class. Next, they made the argument that to speak up against the new ruling class amounted to a form of violence. And finally, they argued that failure to echo the new ruling class was itself a form of 
harm. Silence is violence, quote unquote. We must reject each one of these steps in reverse order. First, we must reject the imbecilic notion that silence is violence. It isn't, and all too often, it's sanity. When it comes to children whom radical authoritarian leftists all too often resemble, bad behavior should be met with a simple response, ignoring them. This is tough. It's a tough principle for parents to learn. I know I've had to practice it routinely, but the natural tendency when faced with radical behavior is to engage. But it's precisely our attention that often gives radicals their power. Imagine if, instead of rushing to respond to the pseudo-urgent needs of the latest establishment media-driven mob, we simply shrugged. Imagine if, next time we declared that they had been harmed by mere dissent, we chuckled at them and moved on. Their power would be gone. We don't have to engage, and we certainly don't have to echo. Second, we must firmly reject the notion that speech is violence. Dissent isn't violence. Disagreement isn't harm. That's because pol politics isn't in an identity. It's a denial of someone's identity to disagree with them. We know that this is our everyday personal relationships. We disagree with those who we love most of all on a regular basis. They don't feel that we are denying their humanity or doing them violence. They understand that if they wish to be treated as adults, they ought to subject their views to the scrutiny of others. Anyone who utters a phrase, speech is violence, should be immediately discounted as a serious human being. Finally, and most carefully, we must deny the conflation of cordiality and inoffensiveness implicit in the cordiality principle. To be cordial does not mean to be inoffensive. As I am fond of saying facts don't care about our, our feelings, that doesn't mean that we should be deliberately rude. It doesn't mean that, however, we should not allow others' subjective interpretations of our viewpoints to rule our minds. We cannot grant others an emotional veto over our perspectives. To oppose same-sex marriage, for example, should not be considered prima facie offensive. One can make a perfectly plausible argument for the superior societal importance of traditional marriage over same-sex marriage without insulting those whom are homosexual. To go silent in the face of important societal issues is out of fear that you might offend is to grant unending power to those who are the quickest to rise to offense. And that's a recipe for emo emotional blackmail. In rejecting the cordiality principle, we need to not give cover to those who deliberately, deliberately offend. To politically, to be politically incorrect means to say that, which requires saying, not to be a generic run-of-the-mill jackass. There's a difference between making an argument against same-sex marriage and calling someone an ugly name. In fact, conflating the two grants the authoritarian left enormous power. It allows them to argue that non-liberal points of view ought to be quashed in order to prevent terrible behavior. Fighting political correctness requires a willingness to speak truth and the brains to speak the truth in cogent, clear, and objectively decent language. When we fight back in this way, we win. We win because bravery draws followers. We win because honesty without vile behavior draws admirers. Once again, this isn't a, an issue of left versus right. It's an issue of ho upholding values dear to a pluralistic democracy. Values that should be held in common across the political spectrum. In direct opposition 
to the authoritarian left. Let's invite some people. Come on, people. Renormalizing our institutions. As I've argued throughout this book, our institutions have been steadily renormalized by an intransigent minority making common sense with other quote-unquote marginalized popula populations in opposition to the majority. But this process can be reversed. It's time to renormalize return normalcy to our institutions. To do this requires a creation of an intransigent minority. Because too many Americans have allowed the authoritarian left to cudgel them into silence or agreement, the key here is courage. Americans must be willing to stand up, speak out, and refuse to acquiesce to the power hierarchy. Take, for example, the case of Donald McNeil Jr., a science reporter for the New York Times. In February 2021, McNeil was forced out of his job. It turns out that two years before, in 2019, McNeil acted as an expert guide on the Times student trip through Peru. During that trip, a student asked McNeil whether he thought a 12-year-old ought to be canceled for using the N-word. The process of explaining contextual differences in using the N-word, McNeil uttered the infamous slur. Some of the students complained, and some woke staffers at the Times demanded action. They sent yet another in their endless stream of whining letters to the editors demanding action. The editors quickly acquiesced, thanking the authoritarian leftist brute squad for their input. So McNeil lost his job. Executive editor Dean Baquette went as far as to state, we do not tolerate racist language regardless of intent. As a standard so insanely authoritarian that Baquette later had to walk it back. But here's the thing. A lot of New York Times staffers thought McNeil should have retained his job. McNeil was a member of the News Guild, union of 1,200 Times employees. As Vanity Fair reported, McNeil is not without sympathy or support, both inside the Times and out. Some people feel that he was the latest victim in a cancel culture run amok, forced out of his job by a public pressure campaign. So here's the question. Where were they? What would have happened if the Times staffer, staffers, instead of allowing intellectual authoritarians like Nicole Hannah-Jones to rule the roost, stood up in favor of McNeil? There are 1,200 employees at the Times. Just 150 staffers signed the letters to the editor. What if 400 employees had signed the letter the other way? What if instead of caving to an intransigent minority, the Times employees who backed McNeil had formed their own intransigent minority or even intransigent majority? And what if those staffers had forced the editors into a binary choice, side with free speech and non-authoritarianism or side with a relatively small group of malcontents? By the same logic, it holds through throughout American life. What if employees banded together and simply refused to go along with the latest cancellations or the latest demand for diversity training or the latest Maoist struggle session? What if religious Americans who comprise the plurality of Americans in, in nearly every organization 
said they would not go along with attempts to force them into silence. The answer has been shown time and time again authoritarian leftists to back down when faced with an intransigent minority. That's why they are authoritarians in the first place. If they could convince others of their arguments, they wouldn't need to create social stigma around their opponents or militarize weapons of power against them. In December of 2020, Pedro Domingos, Professor Emeritus of Computer Science and Engineering at the University of Washington wrote publicly about the standards for scientific research at the Conference on Neural Information Processing Systems. <coughs> NeuroIPS. Now, NeuroIPS now suggests that regardless of scientific quality or contribution, a submission may be rejected for ethical considerations, including methods, applications, or data that create or reinforce unfair bias. This means that good research cannot be conducted under the NeuroIPS auspices so long as there's such research challenges the prevailing leftist policies. Domingos wrote that this was a terrible idea. This prompted a backlash naturally with authoritarian leftists labeling Domingos a racist. As Domingos wrote, his own department distanced itself from him. Other professors suggested that anyone who cited Domingos' work was by de definition a bigot. But once again, this wasn't the end of the story. Domingos writes, as the days passed, it became clear who the real radicals were. Something interesting happened. Many of the, the usually reticent moderates in our community began to speak up and denounce the unhinged and ruthless tactics applied against me and my supporters. In the end, I suffered no professional consequences, at least not in any formal way, and the cancel crowd's ringleader even issued a public apology and promised to mend her ways. So what happened? According to Domingos, the solidarity kicked in. A network of like-minded people willing to speak up, actually spoke up, activate when you're on solid ground, and try to pick fights in which you can knock off the authoritarian Goliath. Never apologize. And direct your resistance not merely at authoritarian leftists, but at those in charge of the institutions. As Domingo writes, even companies that posture heavily in the area of social justice don't actually want to be stained by the disgraceful behavior of mob leaders. If an intransigent minority can be activated, then renormalization can occur. Those in the middle rarely like the authoritarian left. They are just afraid to speak out against them. So form a core group of intransigent people who share your values and then build. Prying open the institutions. All of this may work for institutions that are still up for grabs, but what will you do if the heads of these institutions aren't merely going along to get along or blowing with the wind? What if the heads of these institutions are dedicated authoritarian leftists themselves, invulnerable to intransigent minorities, fully willing to utilize every power they have to silence dissent? At this point, Americans are left with three options, and they should exercise all three. First, the legal options. Your authoritarian left is extraordinarily litigious. And when they can't win victories in the court of public opinion, they seek victory in the courts themselves. In fact, authoritarian leftists frequently use the mere threat of lawsuit to force compliance from those in power. 
Other Americans are generally reluctant to invoke the use of courts to force their employers to do their bidding. That's usually the right instinct, but it's precisely the wrong instinct when it comes to fighting the authoritarian left. When it comes to the authoritarian left's desire to cram down diversity training that discriminates based on race, for example, lawsuits are fully merited. If companies force employees to attend training sessions segregated by race or in which white employees are taught their inherent privilege, white employees ought to seek legal redress. So-called anti-racism training often violates the provisions of the Civil Rights Act of 1965 by explicitly discriminating on the basis of race. So make your employer pay the price for doing so or threaten to do so if the company doesn't stop its legal violations. Another option is availably or is available for politically for those who wish to fight the authoritarian left, the formal expansion of anti-discrimination law to include matters of politics. Okay? Many states bar discrimination on the basis of sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, race, religion, age, and disability among other standards. Yet you can still be discriminated against based on your politics based on your politics it, and as a sidebar that was absolutely true and in a matter of absolute enforceability in the state of Washington they, you could be fired for your politics you could be discriminated against for your politics they made no bones about it Washington state actively openly discriminates against people based on politics and it is leftist against everyone else so if we wish to hold the authoritarian left to its own standards, if we wish to use the bulwark of the law to prevent discrimination by limiting free association, then why give the authoritarian left a monopoly on anti-discrimination law? Why not force the authoritarian left to back down by using the same legal tools they have utilized themselves to silence dissent? If you're traditionally conservative, and a conservative baker who doesn't want to violate his political precepts by catering to a same-sex wedding, you'll find yourself on the wrong end of a lawsuit. If you're a leftist caterer who doesn't want to violate his political precepts by serving a Republican dinner meeting, you're off the hook. Perhaps that should change. You know, this is an ugly option, particularly for those who still believe in core freedoms like the freedom of association. I happen to believe that people should be able to hire and fire whomever they want to. But the authoritarian left disagrees. And not only do they disagree, they've captured the legal system to the extent that you can only be targeted for having the wrong politics today. All of this raises a broader strate strategic possibility, the possibility of mutually assured destruction. Before I founded the Daily Wire, I ran an organization called Truth Revolt. The goal of the organization was to act as a sort of reverse media matters to use a team of activists to encourage advertisers not to spend their money with left-wing outlets. In launching Truth Revolt, we openly acknowledged that we didn't like our own tactics. In fact, as my business partner Jeremy Boring stated at our founding, we'd happily dissolve our organization if Media Matters did the same. But if the authoritarian left was going to use, utilize nasty tactics, in order to force institutions to cave to them, we'd have to make clear that the right could do the same. Either organizations would begin to ignore both sides, a preferable outcome, 
or they would simply stop engaging with political universe entirely or generally. In our view, that was only one strategy worse than arming up against the authoritarian left, unilateral disarmament. Okay, and that is where I have to call it. It's been 30 minutes, folks. I really appreciate you dropping by. Thank you, Miranda, for listening. Um, this has been more from Your Authoritarian Boss and readings from Your Authoritarian Moment by One Ben Shapiro. Please tune in tomorrow. Um, I'll try to block in a time between 7 and 8. Today was a little bit of a, a later one. Um, enjoy the rest of your weekend night here on Saturday night, and we'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. Subscribers can access unsanctioned citizen podcast archives at Substack, Automatic, iHeartRadio podcasts, and call in. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you. Visit SheilaMDean.com. 